You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Mean O'Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. All right, all right, all right. Welcome, Black, 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 like I never left. Black again, Black AF. It is the one and only Carl Anthony Payne, the host of Black Arm of the Law. Today's guest, Kelvin Waits, retired police chief of Georgetown, South Carolina. Kelvin retired as the first African-American police chief at the Georgetown Police Department in Georgetown, South Carolina, which is the third oldest city in the state of South Carolina. He has received a Bachelor of Science degree from Charleston Southern University in organization management and joined the John Maxwell team in March of 2022. He is a graduate of the prestigious FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia. And boy, oh boy, if I could start tapping on this uh, microphone right now, I'd be sending messages and he would know exactly what I was saying. Why? Because he mastered the art of Morse code, which was one of his uh, assignments. Uh, Kelvin's motto, life's motto is we are all actors in God's production. Black Arm of the Law, please welcome retired police chief Kelvin Waits. So you, you say you're from New York. What part of New York? Uh, Harlem. I was born in Harlem, lived there until I was about 10 years old. Okay. What, what part of Harlem do you remember? I believe it's 120th Street. And then what's your connection to South Carolina? My connection to South Carolina is, is you know, basically, you know, I had an older brother who got in trouble from time to time when we lived in New York. And uh, it was kind of rough, you know, during that time. We lived in, we lived in, uh, on the 14th floor of the projects. And, um, and my parents, you know, they decided, you know, we're going to save up money and get these, get these kids out of the city. And so we ended up moving to Charleston, South Carolina. Now, here's the crazy part. Here's the crazy part. My father, right, was stationed in Charleston in the Air Force. My father was stationed in Charleston and met my mom in New York, in Harlem. So I grew up in Harlem, but ended up also spending summers and everything in South Carolina as well. That's crazy. A small town in South Carolina, too. Real, yeah. real small town. As a matter of fact, you know the town because, as you said, you almost went to a PC, as they call That's it. Right. That's right. Presbyterian uh, College. Yeah, yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, when uh, when we moved, you know, the way the story went, um, Carl, sometimes they say you can't tell a story without telling a story. So, you know, when we moved from uh, from from New York to Charleston, I, I was a sickly kid. You know, what I'm saying I had I wore uh, leg braces like Forrest Gump before there was Forrest Gump. You know, what I'm saying I had asthma really, really bad. And so we moved and, and of course, the climate changed and my asthma started to clear up. My legs weren't going to get any straighter than they already were. So off with the leg braces and I realized that I was athletic started playing football, basketball, sports. And uh, when it was time to go to college, I ended up going to Newberry College, which was the arch rival of PC um, yes, sir. You know, at, when I left high school. But prior to me signing with Newberry, I remember going to uh, Clinton, South Carolina to PC on a weekend visit. And, uh, and I came real close to signing with PC as well. 
but but I chose Newberry instead. But being at Newberry, I would go back to PC every Thanksgiving because there was like a bowl game that we played every year called the Bronze Derby, and it was very mm-hmm. very competitive game, and you know it was a, it was a big rivalry between the two colleges. Well, I'm, I'm sure that was a tough choice because ain't ain't Ish in Newberry. And ain't ish in Clinton, South Carolina. So you know, you 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 you, you didn't go wrong either way. I mean, I'm partial because I'm from Clinton, or as they say in the South, Clinton, 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 South Carolina. I actually just left there like three days ago. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I was in Atlanta, and I drove up to see my great aunt. Um, oh, wow. You know, who's who's you know, two of my great aunts actually. One is 85, and one is 83, and they are the matriarchs of the family. You know, and they holding it down. But you know, we don't. I don't get a chance to see them as much. And you know, they're getting up there in age to where some of their faculties, you know, in terms of remembering things, you know, uh, you know, are starting to fade. So, yeah. you know, we got to keep reminding them and keep. Keep yeah. making sure they they know you know that everybody's there and laying hands on. But you know that's where our roots are from. So I know you mm-hmm. grounded. I know you got good yeah. strong roots, man. I grew up in the projects in Harlem too, so you got the best of both worlds, man. You got Harlem in you, and you got the South in you. So I know yeah. you are are, are a, a solid dude, solid yeah. dude. Talk to me a little bit about your journey, man. Tell us a little bit about your journey and and, and uh, how you got started in law enforcement, or what you know what made you. What was the path? That, that led okay. you there. Funny thing is that as a kid, you know, a lot of kids say, I want to be a fireman. I want to be, I want to be a police officer. I never had a desire to be in law enforcement. Didn't want no part of it. Uh, when I, when I graduated from high school, went to Newberry College on, on a football scholarship, my major was broadcast communications. I actually wanted to work for ESPN or BET. I love sports, mm. wanted to talk about sports. So like I said, I was in the broadcast communications. Uh, in my case, you know, I was like, uh, I got too much too fast. I, I, I was I was I was very talented in football hearted as a freshman and uh I think it went to my head honestly because I, I spent more time partying and playing football than I did go to class. And and I did not make the best uh, out of my opportunity. I'm just I'm just keeping it real with you. I did not capitalize and make the best out of my opportunity, but I did recognize for myself my junior year, I said, you know what? I need to get my I need to get my life together. And so I made the decision. I shocked everybody. I shocked the college. I shocked my parents. I shocked everybody. I decided I was going to join the army, and so mm. I did. I went and uh, I went to Columbia, South Carolina, to the MEP station. I had a uh, a you know recruiter I was talking to the whole time, and I you know and I, and I did it before I even talked to my parents or talked to anybody because I didn't want anybody talking me out of it. So, you know, I go home for Thanksgiving. I'm like, Mom, by the way, I'm going in the Army. She was like, what? You know, she you know, she was, she went off because I was really the first person in my in my family to go to college. And, and that college education was really important to her. And, you know, I expressed to her, I said, look, I'm going to get the GI Bill. I promise you I'm going to finish college, but but I need to do this. And so went in the military. Uh, I spent four years there. I spent most of my time over in Germany, Augsburg, Germany. Both of my kids were born there. Um, and, it, and it was good for me at the time. It helped me. It allowed me to grow up, you know what I'm saying, to get centered and get my life back together. Uh, what I did in the military was I copied Morse code. I was in the military intelligence field. So I had to go and, and, and get trained on how to copy Morse code. And, uh, and so I intercepted Morse code from countries that weren't friendly to the United States. I mean that sounds very interesting. I want I want to dive into that a little bit before you know before we get too too ahead oh, of ourselves. It, yeah, was, it yeah. was very interesting. I, I actually uh, at the time the um, military installation for the country was at a place called Fort Devens, Massachusetts, right outside of Worcester, 
Let me make sure I say it right. Worcester, Massachusetts. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. I remember uh, I left basic training at Fort Jackson, which was the hottest place in the world in August. <laughs> left there. You know, it's 150 degrees, and I end up in uh, Boston, about an hour outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, the school was tough. You know what I'm saying? It was, uh, at the time, it had um, one of the highest suicide rates for for job for schools in the military. It was pretty intense, and it was like you're really learning the language all over again. You know what I'm saying? And so that language was Morse code. Uh, and so after that, after about nine months there training, off to Germany, I go, you know, and I started, uh, you know, dealing with the mission I was dealing with. And like I said, I spent uh, most of my military career over in Germany, raised my family there. And uh, while I was there, my dad got sick. And I remember, uh, and, and this is where things started to shift, you know, because when I went in, my plan was... I'm going to be a career soldier. I'm going to stay here 20 years or, or 20 plus years to do my thing. My dad got sick. And I remember trying to catch a hop from Stuttgart, Germany, back to Charleston. And it took mm-hmm. me about 72 hours. You know, I mean, a hop is based on available space. You know what I'm saying? You're pretty much jumping on this plane. It's free, but it's a, it's all about timing and space and, and availability. So it took about 72 hours for me to get back to Charleston. And I'm thinking the whole time that, you know, my dad's now before I get there. And uh, and so that uh, that that explained on me. And I started shifting and thinking, you know what? I need to get closer to home. My dad was older, getting older. He was sick. I, I wanted to get closer to home because I didn't enjoy that experience. And while I was home, I met a, I met a gentleman named Lane Cribb, and he was the sheriff of Georgetown County. Right. Uh, where my where my wife was from. And uh, and I met him through somebody and I ended up having a conversation with him one day. And I'm still in the army and he was intrigued by what I did in the army. He said, well, tell me about Morris Code. Tell me about what you do. And so I told him and I said, let me ask you something. And up until this point, law enforcement was not on my radar. I said, uh, tell me what it is you like about your job. And he told me he was an older white guy. He said, I like helping people. That's what I like most about my job. He said, you see, a lot of people think law enforcement is just about locking people up and arresting the bad guy, but it's so much more to it. You know, that's how he broke it down for me. And he said, I really love helping people. And I said, what do you like least about your job? And he said, Kevin, I've never got used to telling a parent that their kid is gone. He said, yeah. I've done it too many times. I, I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not used to it. I hope I never get used to it. He said, but that is the part that I hate most about my job. And so we left the conversation with he said, look, if you ever decide to get out of the military uh, and you want a job, look me up. And so back to Germany, I go, um, you know, I finish up my time and I come back to the States. And, and he was a man of his word and, and he hired me. He hired me. And that's why I started uh, my, my law enforcement career at the Georgetown County Sheriff's Office. Nice, nice. And how, how long have you been there? I, I was in law enforcement total uh, 24 years. You know, I was wow. there at the, at, at the Georgetown County Sheriff's Office, uh, you know, uh, in, until an opportunity came open at another department. I uh, left mm-hmm. the Georgetown County Sheriff's Office as a lieutenant, went to the Georgetown City Police Department as a captain. Uh, and so I was there as a captain. I was on a waiting list to go to the FBI National Academy for like 10 years. And so all of a sudden I get a call one day. Hey, you ready? We got a slot like out of the blue. Randomly, that's how it works. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're just on this list. And so uh, fortunately for me, my, wow. my chief at the time, he support, you know, he supported that. And he was a former he was a former FBI agent. So everything just kind of played out nicely. He was like, hey, you ready? I'm like, yep. And so off to the FBI Academy, I go, which was really the, uh, the highlight of my career. 
because I got a chance to train with law enforcement executives from across the globe, Saudi Arabia, Korea. I mean, you name it. Everybody was there. Matter of fact, my roommate was from the country of Uganda. His name was John Ngutse. You know what I'm saying? He was, he was, he was an African guy from the country of Uganda, but it was a great experience. It was a great challenge. Um, you know, and I was able to, uh, to graduate from the FBI National Academy. Let's let's talk a little bit about this uh, Morse code. Okay. You know, you said you you had picked up on some things, or you you were able to intercept some things, right, during your time. What are the different ways, or how did that happen? I mean, talk about as much as you can. You know, whatever you can right. talk about. I know that when people are in distress, or obviously when people are trying to send secret messages and things like that. I mean, it's just interesting. Like, how do they do that? How do they get away with it? You know, like how do they? You know, you know, because when we think of Morse code, you know, we think of SOS, tap tap tap. Tap, 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 oh, tap, you know, but it could come in a lot of different forms, right? Or, or t- tell us about it. Like, I, I don't know anything about it. It, it can be generated uh, automatically by a computer or it can be generated by a person. Um, it can come, uh, you know, slow to where you can hear it or it can come extremely fast to where instead of hearing dits and dies, because that's what Morse code is, it's dits and dies. Instead of hearing dits and dies, it could be going come across so fast that all you hear is a tone like the, it'll sound, it, it'll be that fast. It'll sound like one tone. And so you got to record it, slow it down and be able to pull it out. You see what I'm saying? So it, it's crazy. crazy. So, it how, crazy. so how did you, how, I mean, how did you know what to look for or how did you catch it? Well, or, you know the what I mean? Fun, the, funny, the funny thing is, is that, uh, and, and like you said, I'm going to talk about what I can talk about. The, yeah. the, the big deal is that there are no secrets. You know what I'm saying? If if you got, if you think you secretly, like back in the day, if you think you secretly transmit, you, you're not. There are no secrets. And in so many cases, um, countries know when another country is going to come up, when they're scheduled to come up and send a message. And so we knew when it was coming, right? So, I, you know, you sitting there and you waiting. I'm wearing headphones just like this. I'm wearing headphones and I got a keypad in front of me and here it comes. And it's almost like when, uh, if you've ever been to an orchestra and you hear uh, the strings tuning before they send them, you know what I'm saying? Before they start playing music, like, you know, they go through the strings and they tone and then you hear like a whining noise and that's how they tone before they actually send them. And then all of a sudden, boom, it comes. And it's your job to catch it live time because live time is always better than recording it and coming back and trying to get it later because, you know, a lot of times life life's on the line um, and and it's always just best to get it to get it live. But it was a very uh, interesting and uh, and fulfilling career. And like I said, I, you know, my initial plan was was to say do the twenty, but when my dad got sick, you know, I decided no to shift. Right. All right. So talk about talk about your time with, uh, with the FBI. So you know, like I said, um, you know, I was there for ten weeks, right? And it was a uh, it was a very uh, challenging. It was challenging uh, physically, right? It was challenging mentally. Because you're away from your family, right? Uh, and it was, you know, it, it, and it was an educational uh, component to it as well. You were you were in school through the University of Virginia, and uh, you know, we trained. The biggest deal for me was was the networking. The networking was was incredible because I had people in my class from Saudi Arabia, from Niger, from my roommate was from Uganda. They pulled law enforcement executives from across not just the country, but from across the world, and they bring them in. And you all train together. And, and the biggest thing, like I said, for me was the networking. But it helped me understand that even though we're from different countries, we all face the same 
challenges. And most of those, one of the biggest challenges was earning the trust of uh, the communities that we served. Mm, even on that level? Yes. Yes. Every country, we face the same challenges. And and why do you think that is? That, so that's interesting. I don't think a lot of people, I mean, okay, so let me, let me, let me, let me rephrase the question. Let me rephrase the question. Was it based on color or was it just based on like blue? You understand what I'm saying? Does no, it make sense I, what I'm asking? I extended. I I totally get it. And it okay. was the crazy. The crazy thing was it was based on blue. It, 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 it was based on 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 just law enforcement in general. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I, and I think you know my personal opinion is that you know when when you have a group of people that has so much control. Right. Mm -hmm. In terms of in terms of how things go, how terms in terms of uh, enforcing the law, in in terms of having the power to powers to arrest. There's always going to be a little trust factor in there because they're going to be people who have that power that abuse it. You see what I'm mm -hmm. saying? And so and when they do, it makes it bad for everybody. It makes it bad for everybody, especially being in a global society. You know, I, I remember um, after uh, George Floyd was murdered, uh, we were about to have marches locally in the city where I was the police chief. And I remember one of my uh, police officers, we, we were geared up. We were expecting about 5,000 people this particular day. And he says, Chief, uh, we, we were in a meeting prior to going out and working. And he says, I, you know, I just want to know why. And he was a white police officer. And he said, I want to know why. People got to march here in Georgetown, South Carolina. George Floyd wasn't murdered here, you know, so why are people marching here? You know, he mm. couldn't understand it, right? And so, you know, Carl, I was so happy. I'm telling you, I was happy that he asked the question and that I was the police chief at the time. I felt like that was my moment and that was my aha mm -hmm. moment and step up to the plate because I was able to explain to him that, look, George Floyd got murdered in everybody's living room across the world. Everybody saw it. Everybody mm -hmm. saw it. Uh, and so with that, with seeing that comes trauma and people are frustrated and people are hurt. And I say, hell, I'm hurting because unlike you, when when I saw it, I saw my dad, I saw my uncle, I saw my, my, my brothers, I saw my own son laying on the ground begging for his mom. I said, so people are hurting and they have to be able to learn how uh, to go out and have these peaceful protests so that they can they can shed this pain so the healing process can start. People have to be able to express themselves. And I said, our job today is to go out and show people that, you know, the the the, the gentleman, I won't even call his name, but the gentleman that, that murdered George Floyd uh, didn't represent all of us. We got opportunity to go out, march with our citizens, show them that we got their back and we support. And uh, and so and that's what we did that day. And that one bottle was broken. Let me, let me ask you this. Was the guy who asked you why? He was. He was a white police officer. Well, I think you handled that pretty well, because, you know, because I'm pretty sure he, he might not have had the same question if it had been someone white. I believe that. And like I said, I, I believe I really believe called it. I was supposed to be in that space at that time to answer that question, because I don't think someone else may have been able to answer it the right way. Mm -hmm. I believe that. Let me ask you a question. What are your thoughts on gun control? Mm, that's tough. Uh, I, you know, I believe that I believe that, you know, that 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 good, uh, solid citizens should be able to, you know, have weapons. Right. And, and, and use them in a safe manner. But I, I believe that we have challenges across our, our, our country with uh, with mental health. Mental health is issue in South Carolina. 
because there's the funding's not there and uh and there's a gap there's a gap and um you know we can you know there there are tools out there to kind of monitor social media to figure out what people are doing right if, if certain attacks are going to come but one thing that's hard to monitor is someone's mental health and if someone decides that hey i'm gonna do something and and and, and they have access to going out and, and and getting weapons it's just a bad it's a bad situation so in my opinion um to answer your question, I really think that as a nation, we need to tighten up our game when it comes to, to dealing with mental health issues. Okay, so if, if I'm not mistaken or if, if I'm correct, a lot of these issues that we've been having, uh, in your opinion, stem or are rooted within, you know, that within mental health. Mental health and in, in, in the other aspect is hate. How do you measure hate, right? How do you gauge? How do you gauge hate? Um, you know, a lot of people, some people that 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 uh, when they come out from my experience, when they come out and say, "Hey, I want to do something. I want to do something. I want to do something." Those aren't really the people. Yeah, we got to pay attention, right? Because when when people tell you who they are, we got to believe, right? In today's world, we definitely have to pay attention to them. But for those who don't announce it, who who stay under the radar and and they have hatred and bad intentions, it's a tough thing. Um, and so, again, um, I, I just believe it, it doesn't need to be a gimme for someone to just come in off the street uh, without a thorough background, uh, without, um, you know, uh, you know, mental health uh, being built up around the country to walk in and just say, hey, I, I, want, I want to purchase a weapon. So the vetting process has to be altered a little bit. Yeah. The, I believe um, so. I believe so. OK. OK. Let me ask you this. Have you had any experiences uh you know, here on the show, we talk to a lot of different officers and who have shared their experiences about how, because I think the misconception with the community is that officers of color don't deal with the same thing that civilians of color deal with, meaning racism, um, systemic racism, racism on any level, hate, as you, you know, let's call it what it is, um, even within the ranks, even within the departments, even within their, you know, so we've had different officers and share their, their stories about how they had to deal with some of these things coming up through the ranks as well, uh, sometimes prevented them from, you know, putting a ceiling, uh, you know, glass ceiling, if you will, on their on their uh, cap on their journey or trying to stifle or stop or or just being out in the field and seeing something where it's like, hey, that's not OK. Um, did you ever experience uh, anything like that in your journey? I did. Um, you know, as you were asking the question, uh, it, you know, it took me back to I remember when, uh, you know, of course, I, mean, I won't say what. First of all, South Carolina, if you had said no, I'd have shut the show down right now. Because I'd have been like, he's lying. He's lying. And I can't I can't talk to him. I can't look at him. It's South Carolina all day long. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the, the, the Ku Klux Klan walking through our yard. Like, I, 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 there's so much vivid. I have so many. I've, I've never experienced so much racism ever in, in the 53 years I've been on this planet than I have in South Carolina yeah. alone. Yeah. So, so yeah. So you said I took you back to a specific, right? You Something did. Specific. Uh, okay. Yeah. Talk about. And, and I remember. Talk about I remember. Uh, you know, I'd gotten. Uh, you know, I worked really hard. I, you know, I took took my job serious, and like I said, I you know I came straight out of the, the military. So you know, I took a job serious, and, and you know, I worked hard. I took serious, and I wanted to to really make an impact and really help the community. So as a result of that, you know, I got promoted. Um, you know, fairly quick, and uh, and I can remember. Um, 
one of my one of my uh, colleagues, one of my white colleagues, coming to me, uh, and he said, "Listen, man, uh, I need to talk to you. I need, I really need to talk to you." And I said, uh, "Okay." And this was a person that, that I didn't normally. We passed each other in the hallways, you know what I'm saying, and we would speak, but it was uh, it wouldn't it wasn't real friendly, even though we were coworkers. You know what I'm saying? It just wasn't a, a real connection. And uh, so when he said he wanted to talk to me, I'm thinking, "What's this guy want?" And so we finally meet and we talk and he says, look, man, you know, I'm from I'm from Ohio. I'm not from the South. And he says something happened and uh, it really bothered me because I wasn't raised that way. And um, and I just, you know, I, I just wanted to talk to you about it. I said, OK, is this, a, is this a white officer? He's, or a white, or? he's a white. Yeah, he's a white police okay. officer. Okay. Okay. And, uh, and so, you know, I said, okay, well, what's up? And he said, listen, uh, you know, after you got promoted the other day, you know, I was around some, uh, our coworkers uh, and, and the comment was made, um, you know, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm sick and tired of these, of these niggers getting their way around here. And, uh, and he said, it hit me wrong. He said, I'm not, I'm from Ohio. I, I wasn't raised that way. And I think people are people. And he said, I know me and you don't talk that much. He said, but I just wanted to tell you because it really bothered me and it was wrong. And, uh, and so I just want to tell you as a man, I don't agree with that. I don't believe in that. And, and you do what you got to do. If you want to bring it to the forefront, you want to blow it up, you do what you got to do. I heard it and I will say it again. And, uh, and, and, and me and that, uh, me and that guy, we had a 20 something year relationship based off of that conversation because even though he didn't look like me, Carl, I knew his heart. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I knew I knew his heart because yeah. he went against the grain to come and tell me that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and, 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 and even went a step further and said, if you need to repeat, you tell it. You know what I'm saying? I, I got your back because I heard it. And uh, and so I had a decision to make, you know. And so, you know, my decision was, you know, I could I could bring it to the forefront. I could blow it up or I could use it. You know what I'm saying? And and, 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 and as a as a motivator, as, as something to make me understand that, OK, I'm going to really dig in. I'm going to really grind. I'm going to really work hard. I'm going to be in a position to really impact change and, and kind of squash some of that stuff. You know what I'm saying? And try to help keep some of the people that maybe should not be in law enforcement out. And and, and that's what I did. But that was definitely an experience uh, that I will never, uh, a real experience so, that I will never, ever forget. So what, what did you do? I kept it to myself. I dug in and I decided to work towards uh, at the time, you know, you know, I, I just got promoted on a lower level, but I decided that I was going to use that as motivation, put myself mm -hmm. in a position uh, to really make change. In, in, in yeah. Yeah. OK, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. You let it let it fuel for the fire to go to right. the next level. Yeah. Yeah. I really didn't want to throw that guy, even though he came to me like that. I didn't want to throw him under the bus if I didn't have to. Right. Have to. Right. Plus, you knew the position that you'd be putting him in as well. Right. But. I definitely would have made a list. Oh, I'd have been like, oh, Wachowski? Okay, him. I'd have made a list. Oh, who else? Oh, Jones? Okay, Jones. Yeah, I'd have made, oh, I'd have made a list. Ooh, I'd have had a list. Wow. Okay, because, well, yeah, you know, I mean, look, that's like, I've had some officers come on here, man, and I just want to know your feelings on this, but I've had, some, I've had some cats come on here and try to say that they don't believe it's an issue and that that, 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 that doesn't even exist type of thing. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, I'm like, if you look like me and you sitting across from me right now, 
you know, I mean, I, I, it's just so, you know, because to me, I feel like sometimes they're still hiding or either in denial or they don't want to cross that line. But, you know, I mean, to sit over there and say uh, there are no real issues of racism, I'm like, what? Yeah. Like, like you. Okay, so you you're trying to tell me you've never seen, witnessed nothing in your entire tenure, and then you don't even think that that exists today, like outside of the policing. Like that's the problem. That that is a bit a, bit, a problem in itself. If that if you don't believe that or think that, I agree. I mean, you know, a lot of you know people don't understand, or they should that, you know, when we go, uh, people in the law enforcement industry are not hired or, or recruited from another planet. You know. It, it, we all recruited and come from the same population, <laughs> right? Right. And right. so within within that population, there's good and there's evil. Sometimes people get inside of law enforcement that shouldn't be in the industry, and they, and they make it bad. They make it bad. They give everybody in the industry a black eye: white, black, yellow, green, blue. They make it bad for everybody. So again, like you said, um, to, to stand by or sit by and say that um, there are no issues, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think the vetting process has to change with recruiting as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of things, a lot, a lot of things that have been in place for a long time. But, you know, these are different times. So yeah. you have to change with the times. And so do some That's of the right. processes and some of the rules. Uh, you know, a lot of things need to be updated and amended. Um, yes. yes. Next, moving on. What are your thoughts on this, uh, on the insurrection, January 6th? What are your thoughts on that? Hmm. How did you well, feel? I, Where were you when that happened? I was in I was in my office. I was the chief of police, and I and uh, and I remember somebody called me and said, "Hey, are you watching the news?" And I said, "No." I said, "What's going on?" You know, initially I thought it was something locally or close by, and uh, and I turned it on and I saw what was happening. And uh, honestly, I, I was in uh, I was in disbelief. Right? Initially, right. I was like, "Well, I, this 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 can't be happening." But but I was even in more disbelief because there was so much going on. If you remember watching any of the coverage, there was so much going on, you know, what I'm saying that you really we didn't understand or hear about the injuries and the deaths until, you know, what I'm saying a few days after, you know, what I'm saying? so I was the, the whole thing was just a, a big blow. It was a big blow. And so, Carl, one thing I never do is don't talk about politics. Right. I always talk about I always lead with. I try to lead with humanity, right? And what I will say about January the 6th is that our country or or the people that were there did not lead with humanity. You know what I'm saying? They led with uh, politics. They led with, you know, differences. They led with this. They led with that. But they did not lead with with humanity because at at the beginning and the end of the day, we are all human beings. I don't care. I don't care. How you flip it? I don't care your your religion. I don't care your sexual identity. We are all human beings, and so in my opinion, our country took a step back and, and caught a black eye that day because the people involved did not lead uh, with humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they definitely put politics first, and and again, that goes back to some of the other some of the points that we were making earlier as to what the foundation behind it really is. You know, we can call it politics, but it's rooted. It's rooted in something else. You know, we call it what it is. What are your thoughts on police reform? My thought is, uh, especially being a police chief, you know, it can it can uh, law enforcement, just like any other industry, um, should be a, a industry of continuous improvement. You know, what I'm saying we cannot meaning that we can't. Uh, and I don't know who said it, but somebody said if, if you stand still, you fall behind. Right. Uh, in, in terms of training, we, we have to have the best training. We have to be able to train uh, to deal with mental 
mental health issues. We because we're out there and we deal. People expect law enforcement to deal with everything, and so we got to be prepared to a certain extent to deal with mental health disorders. We we got to do uh, a better job of dealing with our young people from every community. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we got we got to do a better job of that. And and ultimately, more so than anything else, and and I've said it many many times before. As law enforcement, we have to do a better job of listening. We have to listen. We have to do a better job of listening. A lot of times, you know, we get that call and it, and it's like this. You got to go. You got to go. You got to get there. You got to fix up. You know what I'm saying? We want to show up. We want to tell people what to do. We want to fix something. And and a lot of times the remedy is based on our own perspective. And we, all we see is what's, what's at the surface level. You know what I'm saying? And so we got to do a better job of being in the posture to listen, to find out and ask the community, okay, how is it that I can help you? What can we do to make things better? Um, but but to answer your question, again, continuous improvement, police reform, uh, you know, I, I contain South Carolina. One thing that's mandated now um, is that all po- law enforcement officers have to have a psychological evaluation prior to being hired. Uh, and, and, and that was not the case statewide. Um, and so that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And it goes back to uh, the vetting process. But police reform is is, is real. But I, I believe that I don't care what industry it is, police, um, the medical field, engineers, every every situation has got to be in a posture of continuous improvement, because if you don't, you're going to fall behind. And, and crazy things are going to happen. You're going to catch yourself in 2022 or 2023 trying to police like you did in 100 years. And, that, and that's just a recipe for disaster. So how do you feel about the cops or just knowing that there were cops involved on uh, January 6th? It's disheartening. It's disheartening uh, because, you know, I'll tell you this. I'll go back to when I first started. Like I said, I, I came I came into law enforcement straight out of the military. And I will tell you, I, I'm not ashamed to say that I didn't I didn't get it right away. I didn't get it. And when I say I didn't get it was I thought that law enforcement was really just about locking up the bad guy. I didn't understand that there were issues and cycles that needed to be broken. And, 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 and I didn't understand the real what it really meant to serve. And so going back to January 6th, uh, uh, somewhere along the way, the officers that were involved in it forgot that it's all about service. Police law enforcement is about service. I don't care. I don't care what you say. Any, what anybody say, law enforcement is about service. You don't have the luxury of picking and choosing who you serve, right? You serve Republicans. You serve Democrats. You serve. You don't. You you can't pick and choose. It's really about service. And I and I think again that that, that those officers that were involved that day forgot about service. That's the main. That's your motto: protect and serve. And I think that they, you know, really forgot who they're supposed to protect and serve. You know, it's not really like up for debate or interpretation. And I think that's the that's the main thing. Um, But again, you know, like you said, there's good and there's evil. And then there's, you know, and and when it's been infiltrated, it is what it is. You know, and that's where you got to start doing some garden. That's where you got to start cutting the weeds. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't understand why why that's so hard to see you know why that is so hard to understand i think sometimes it it has a lot to do with culture the culture of uh the organization you see what i'm saying i mean if if you know the 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 leadership if if their mindset isn't about service and 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 you said it earlier in in the new model my opinion should be protect and serve 
and you add humanity, right? Add humanity in it. Don't just say protect and serve. Add humanity. But if the leadership isn't in that mindset, things are going to go away, man. Think that, you know what I'm saying? Think good things are not going to happen because, uh, you know, the people involved that's going along, they do Obviously, they think it's, it's right or it's part of the culture. It's, it's, it's accepted. There's not going to be, you know, any repercussions to, to do whatever. And so I, th- I think it just starts. It has to start at the top with the leadership uh, set the tone to to, 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 I mean, to draw a line in the sand and say, this is not going to be tolerated. We're here to serve and this is how we're going to do it. But it has to be a strong, uh, have to be a strong leadership team to get that done. And why do you think it has been done so far? Again, I think it go. I think it goes back to to culture. And you know, for if anybody says that uh, that change is easy, they're lying. Change isn't easy. You know, people do what they're comfortable uh, doing. Uh, a lot of people don't like change, uh, but but it it, it, it I, I believe it goes back to culture. Question is, can you really speak truth? to power in law enforcement and should i want to say should but do you ever think the blue wall will ever come down hmm. so let me ask you this in in, mm-hmm. in, in turn what would when you say the blue wall mm-hmm. what do you mean when i say the blue wall i mean i mean right and wrong so when i, when I say the blue wall i mean hey you know what's right mm-hmm. and you know what's wrong so if something like how when your boy came to you mm-hmm because he knew what was right. And instead of fearing or instead of letting the blue wall code of silence, the blue, I mean, we, we all know the, all right. the, the, the you, right. you know. But I got you. To answer your question, do I believe the blue wall? Yeah, the blue wall uh, will definitely come down one day. I believe, I believe it. I, I have hope that it will because uh, George Floyd did not die in vain. He did not die in vain. I believe that as a result of what happened to George Floyd, Things have changed around, policies have changed around the country in terms of officers being held accountable for standing by and not acting. You know what I'm saying? That's that's really a big deal. And the, and the precedent was set during this trial uh, that the officers were that stood by and didn't stop the act from happening were held accountable. And so uh, now, and as time moves forward, um, uh, you know, I believe that more officers step up to the plate uh, to stop, uh, you know, bad things from happening. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that one day uh, we, we won't even, you know, I hope I'm hopeful that in one day when we use the term the blue wall, it'll stand for something that's positive and that's good. And I'm hopeful, too, my brother. I'm hopeful, too. I mean, we, we, re- we just saw this case recently, uh, as you've seen or maybe you maybe heard or may not have heard in Florida where the young officer uh, pulled the other officer off of uh, the gentleman, you know, and then he he grabbed her by the throat. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, they, they you know, they feel like they have license to do this, you know, yeah. and, and and, you know, and now there are charges being brought against them. But my fear is that, like you said, one, we got to hold everybody accountable because, you know, we have to hold each other accountable just as a society. Right. Whether we're in uniform or not. But my fear is that, hey, what if there were no cameras that day? Just like with Floyd, it's like because that the George Floyd, I mean, it's like the that's the one thing that I feel like everything was set in motion. The pandemic, all of these different things were set in motion so that, like you said, everybody was focused on the same thing at the same time. It's a, you know, the, we, we've seen the media play it out, the different distractions here and there, and they'll do it all the time to take your attention away from something that's really happening. 
that we really need to be focusing on. But, you know, everyone was paying attention to the same thing at the same time. And the unfortunate part is it's not like that was the first time. It wasn't like it was the second, the third, the fourth or the fifth. You know, it was the hundredth time that everybody was focused on the same thing at the same time, which made an impact. And, you know, um, kudos to the law enforcement down in Florida for taking action against that other officer who put his hands on another officer, but definitely who shouldn't have been handling the um, uh, the the other gentleman and the way that he was handling him to begin with. Um, you know, so that's my fear that if there are no cameras around, who knows what's going to happen, you know, because even I mean, we see now even still with cameras, it's, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like you got to <laughs> you have to prove what you're actually seeing. It's like um, I'm looking at these guys get out of a truck and shoot a young black boy for running. I, I don't know why we need to have a trial. We saw it. They got out the truck. He was minding his business and they pulled a shotgun on him and shot him. What's the trial about? So, uh, but yeah, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the purpose of this show is obviously to bridge the gap between law enforcement and the black and brown community and to also explain to them out there that just because they're law enforcement doesn't mean that they don't go through the same things and have to fight the same battles and that. And just also to reinforce that we have some allies, we have some allies that are fighting for the same things that we are fighting for within the ranks. Is there a standout case that you've worked on, you know, doesn't have to be related to what we're talking about right now, but just a case that was very impactful to you, uh, through, you know, at some point in your career that, that made a difference or that, you know, again, doesn't have to be related to what we were just talking about, but just a case that in your mind is always going to stand out, always going to be that one case. Oh, man, that's a good question. There, there, there's a lot. I mean, you you, you, you stirred up something right there because I'm thinking there was one in particular, um, and it's hard to just pick one, but there was one in particular where a uh, gentleman was murdered. He was murdered, mm. and and I wasn't, uh, I didn't have the case. I wasn't assigned the case, but uh, somebody else was. And I really didn't feel like the the effort was put in to solve the case, I felt like the case was solvable, and and it, and uh, I, I just didn't feel like the effort was was really put in to solve the case, and and so I went to uh, my leadership and I asked, I said, hey, can I can I have this case? Can I have this case? Uh, and then you know there was a, a gentleman that was murdered, um, and uh, you know he was murdered by uh, uh, some some guys out the street, and anyway, I worked the case. Uh, was able to talk to the community, was able to, to really dig in and, and, and backtrack and get the information I needed. And and uh, and, and, and the case was solved. And, and I felt good about um, uh, about getting justice for, you know, uh, the gentleman that was murdered, um, even though, you know, some people uh, may have looked down and, and felt like he was, uh, you know, his, his, his living conditions wasn't what they were supposed to be or he wasn't, uh, you know, they might have thought he wasn't uh, who he should be, but at the same time, I looked at it as he's still somebody's child, and 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 it's something bad happened to him, and we need to be doing everything we can to find out who did it. So um, that case in particular uh, meant a lot to me. And then there was another case um, that I worked where a uh, a young kid um, died tragically. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it was an accident? It was an accident. But a young kid died tragically, and um, it impacted me so so much because at the time that young kid was about the same age as my daughter and uh and, you know when i saw that kid it hit it really hit 
close to home to me. And and, and I bring this up because, you know, one of the issues that law enforcement officers deal with is sometimes we think that we're superheroes. You know what I'm saying? We don't need counseling or we don't need therapy or we don't need this. And, and during the time when, when that happened, you know, it was this was a while ago. This is long over 20 years ago. And, and it was, hey, you know, suck it up and drive on. And, and I walked around dealing with that uh, for about 15 years before I finally, you know, what I'm saying was strong enough, had enough courage to say, hey, I need help. I need help with this. And so I bring that up just to bring awareness to the fact that a lot of times uh, officers walk around dealing with old stuff, old cases, old baggage and never deal with it because they don't have enough courage to step up to the plane and say, I need help. That's interesting. That's a good point. That's a good point, because I think, you know, a lot of the times, you know, well, just in general, as, as a man or as a black man, I know a lot of times that, you know, you grow up where your dad or someone is telling you, man, uh, which is also usually happening at the time when you're actually showing emotions or crying or something of that nature. So then you, 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 you grow up a lot of the times thinking it's not OK to show that you got to be strong. You got to yeah. you got to hide that, you know. And, 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 you know, you can only put it so many places, you know, That's right. <laughs> you can only hide it for so long, uh, let alone it's, it's dysfunctional. You know, you shouldn't to be telling someone that it's not okay to, uh, express how you feel, you know, you, you know, cause, cause how you feel is never wrong. You, you have kids. I do. I do. I have, uh, two, two, a 27 year old daughter and a 25 year old son. Uh, okay. My daughter. My daughter is actually interesting thing about my daughter is she's actually a prosecutor in the same city that I was a police chief. And so wow. you know when I when I retired uh, last year it was almost like passing on the torch to her. You know. Right. So that must be special. That's nice. Yeah. At what age did you have the talk with your kids? Mm. With regards to yeah, yeah. It, I'm not talking as, about like birds and bees talking. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, okay. But uh my son was uh was fifteen. My son was fifteen when he got okay. his permit when he got his permit. And uh and I can remember uh on the way home. I told I talked to him about and, and, and you know what? I, I've 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 shared this many times and, and I say the same I say the same thing every time is you know, I almost felt ashamed being in law enforcement to have to have this conversation with my son. But, you know, we, we, we talked and I told him, you know, how he needed to present himself in the event that he was he was stopped, uh, especially at night, you know, where he needed to keep his hands on the steering wheel, where he needed to have his, his things, uh, his, his registration, his insurance readily available, uh, where he didn't have to go reaching across in the glove box, how he needed to have an even even temperament uh, and that, you know, not pretty much not do, do anything to provoke any type of, uh, you know, escalation. Uh, and so, again, he was he was about 15. He had just gotten his permit and I did um, have the conversation with him and I shared with him. Uh, I shared with him an experience that I had um, uh, when I was in law enforcement, uh, you know, for, for about seven years, six and a half, seven years, I did a lot of undercover work. And I can remember one night I actually was on the way back to my office to go from from doing a drug deal. And, and I was stopped by a police officer for no reason. You know, they said I was feeding. That wasn't the case. And, you know, uh, he you know, I was handled a certain way until he figured out who I was and what I was doing. And then the, the tone totally changed. You know what I mean? And I, and I shared that with him as well. But uh, when he was 15, we, we had to talk. What about the daughter? Same thing. Same thing. Uh, we we uh, 
we we had to talk right right after she got her permit as well. And you know, I you know, even though we ha- I had to talk with both, uh, I, I really, with my son being an African American man, I've you know I've always worried about him the most. Always worried about him the most. And see, I think that's the thing um, that most people don't understand either. That that's like like what I was just saying is that even though you are law enforcement, but you are a man of color yourself, and so you know, I think that's what people will be surprised to know that you yourself felt some sort of way about actually having to have that conversation, but you recognizing that it's real. You recognizing too, because you want, you want your son to come home alive. Did you have this in your mind as well? When you pulled over people yourself, when you stopped someone or pulled over someone or someone that looks like yourself or your son or your daughter or whatever. Not, not so much about the conversation, Carl, but just, you know, the last thing I wanted to do when, when I was in law enforcement was if I had to stop somebody, the last thing I wanted them to feel was uncomfortable. Because what people do not realize or recognize is that when you stop a car as a law enforcement officer, one of the scariest things that you could do is stop that car and that walk between your car and their car, you just don't, you, you have no idea what's going Going on in the vehicle, you don't, you just mm-hmm. don't know. And so, a lot of people don't understand that, uh, you know. And and maybe many law enforcement officers won't say it, but I don't mind saying it. There there is anxiety and fear when you leave your car to walk up and stop a vehicle and address, and address that driver. So you know, I always wanted to, uh, you know, did whatever I could to to make people feel comfortable. If if you know, the situation called for it and a situation allowed for it. And that would mean if it was nighttime, I would, I would, I would shine as many lights as I could. To be able to see. <laughs> I'm telling you, just to be able to see in the vehicle and to make yeah. sure that, that the people yeah. in the vehicle could see me, you know what I'm saying? Right. And, and just, right. just being mindful of, you know, it, you know, it, and it really boils down to empathy and really trying to put yourself in that person's position, you know, um, but no, not so much the conversation, but just really trying to make people feel as comfortable, um, you know, as I, and that's just my personal thing. I think it's important. All right. All right. Well, let's land the plane, man. Before I go, what was your favorite cop show growing up? I'd have to say Andy Griffith. What? I'd have to say Andy Griffith. Yeah. I'd have to say Andy Griffith. See, that's that that's that South Carolina coming out mm-hmm. right now. That's mm-hmm. yeah. that's that's yeah. what it is. Mayberry. Mayberry. Yeah. They used yeah. to watch the hell out of some Andy Griffin at my grandmama's house. Uh, that is true. Yeah, Andy That and Ironside. Okay. I remember Ironside and uh and also uh in the heat of the night was a pretty good show. That was yes, it was. Yes, it was. Yeah, yes, it yeah. was. I, looked, oh, I enjoyed. So, so you was the black character on In the Heat of the Night? That was you? I was Virgil. I was Virgil. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. What, what, uh, now, you was I, Virgil, I was but go, not, Virgil. not the real life Virgil. Not the real life Virgil. It was a Virgil on the TV show. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I enjoyed Andy Griffin because he knew everybody. Everybody in the town knew him. And See, whatever that's why you wanted to become on, chief. That's why you wanted you wanted to be Andy Griffith. That's you, all. Man, I'm telling you, man. He whatever was going. I mean, he was really that dude served, man. You know, people yeah. could go to him for all kind of different things, and they just figured it out. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but but I I, re- I enjoyed that as a kid. Check it, check it, Andy Griffith. All right, next question. If you could arrest somebody from your childhood, this is not serious. Could be serious. Could not be serious. <laughs> If you could arrest somebody from your childhood, who would it be and why? Oh, man. You're killing me. You're killing me. I would arrest 
And there's, even no, there's, there's not even a thought process in it. I mean, as soon as you said it, yeah. this kid this kid named Tracy, man, when, when I moved from, from <laughs> New York, when I moved from New York to Charleston and started going yeah. to school, I, I'd walk about a quarter mile. The bus stop was a quarter mile from my house. I would go to the bus stop every morning, and this dude would whip my ass every single morning. For no reason. Because it was Monday, because it was Tuesday, because it was Wednesday. <laughs> Thursday every every day for nothing. He was just Tracy was a bully. He was that's hilarious. And and I'm telling you. And so I remember I remember going home one day crying, and I'm like, oh, you know, telling my dad what happened. He said, Listen, Mm -hmm. I already know the talk. I already know the talk. He said, You're gonna have to take a stand someday because if you don't, this dude gonna be whipping your ass the rest of your life. Yeah, that's not the answer you wanted, but that's the one you got. That is not the answer I want. And I remember, you know, I go and we're at, and, and man, you know, dude, karate movies and Bruce Lee was big then. So this dude was jumping up in the air and kicking me upside the head. And, you know, I mean, it was. Wow. And so anyway, this particular day, I caught him slipping and uh, and I got the best of him. I was a neighborhood hero and he never, ever bothered me again. That's right. You earned the respect. You earned respect. And see, and and, you know, that's how we grew up, man. We grew up, we lived to fight another day. You know, you get your little scrap on, and then when, when, you know, you you, you would even be like, you had enough? Okay, I had enough. Like, it would be one of those things like, I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting, okay? You got your ass for you. I beat you. Okay, go home. You know, it'd be one of those things, man. You know, not today, but you know, that is definitely, I definitely remember those those things. And I definitely remember having that conversation with my dad, too. I had a bully who used to mess with me. And he was like, whoop his ass, son. Because if you don't, you know, I'm going to either whoop your ass or he's going to keep whooping your ass. But we'll have to figure this out. (laughs) You know, don't don't come home crying no more. That's all I'm trying to tell you. Oh, my God. That's funny, man. So, Tracy, wherever you are, Doc, uh, you you got one coming. Yeah. Uh, before we go, man, tell us about what you're doing now, man. Tell us about what you got coming up in the future. Okay, so in the future, uh, I'm, I'm planning on starting a podcast called Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits, where uh, actually, Carl, I just wanted to be a, a campfire atmosphere where people would come on and talk about their differences um, in, in terms of race, in terms of socioeconomic status, in terms of sexual identity. Um, you know, I really believe that uh, it's critical uh, to, 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 to the success in the, in the uh, existence since our country to, to talk, we need to do a better job of talking and communicate. Uh, that, that show will be coming out uh, soon, and uh, I'm excited about it and, and, and having guests and just sharing different experiences that I've gone through uh, over the years. And tell people, uh, do you know where they can find it or hear it, where, where it's going to be? Well, I, I do know that it's going to uh, be on the platform, uh, and, 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 I'll, and I'll be actually be one of your teammates on uh, Nino Line Entertainment. And um, Early, early process, but uh, but I will definitely get that information out, and I will definitely be calling on Carl Payne at some point if he has time to come on and just share, um, brother, how, how race and things have impacted you over the years. You have graced my show, so I definitely will grace yours. Absolutely, that's what's up. Absolutely, man. Well, thank you for sharing with us today, Kevin. I really appreciate you, man. Uh, I know we've been having trouble getting this thing together, but it worked out. It worked out, and you're a homeboy. Right. You 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 from around the way so you know um but i look forward to supporting all your future endeavors man and uh again i salute you for your service i salute you for your journey i salute you for your courage i salute you for being the man that you are and taking the stand that you take so here from a black arm of the law signing off we salute kelvin lakes thank you for having me thank you 
Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Red, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.